This episode of Exploring AI and Oncology from Oncology Data Advisor is sponsored by Foundation LMS. Foundation LMS is a state-of-the-art learning management system that can help you deliver engaging online activities that adhere to the latest accreditation standards. Foundation LMS is purpose-built for the continuing education industry, empowering you to deliver world-class education while ensuring compliance with accrediting bodies such as the ACCME, ANCC, and ACPE. Captivate your learners with highly personalized and engaging educational activities. Leverage our intuitive course authoring tools to build interactive content. Stay in control of your learner's progress with our robust tracking and reporting features. Customize certificates with your own branding, automate outcomes data reporting, and enjoy exceptional customer support 24-7. Visit foundationlms.com to learn more and try Foundation LMS for 30 days risk-free. Thank you everyone for tuning into the show today. We're so excited to be hosting this first episode of Oncology Data Advisor's new podcast series focused on artificial intelligence and cancer care. I'm joined today by our two co-hosts from the Oncology Data Advisor Fellows Forum, Dr. Wakas Buck and Dr. Matthew Hadfield. And we have the honor of being joined today by Dr. Ofer Sharon, who is the CEO of Oncohost. We're really looking forward to hearing more about Oncohost and your work in this field. So to start off, we can have everyone go around and introduce themselves. And Dr. Huck, I will turn it over to you to start off the introductions, and then you can take it away. Awesome. Thanks so much, Kara. Uh, good morning, everybody. Uh, I'm Wakas Huck. I'm a third-year internal medicine resident at NYU in a clinical investigator track and recently matched to uh, UChicago for Oncology Fellowship. Uh, I'm interested in melanoma research uh, in immunotherapy and also in looking at uh, new applications for AI in uh, predicting adverse events. So really excited about this podcast today. I'm Dr. Matthew Hatfield. I'm a third year Oncology Fellow at Brown University in Providence, Rhode Island, uh, in the process of transitioning into being a uh, attending a junior faculty member at Brown uh, with a focus on early drug development and um, phase one clinical trials, as well as uh, cutaneous malignancies, including melanoma. Uh, my research and clinical interests uh, are predominantly in uh, immunotherapy, both the development of new immunotherapeutic medications for, for patients, as well as uh, managing and uh, um, diagnosing immunotherapy toxicities, uh, with a particular interest in developing biomarkers to um, predict immunotherapy toxicity. So I think uh, for me, it's, it's, it's very nice to have you, Dr. Sharana. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. I think this is such an important topic that we, we all can benefit from learning more about. Great. Thank you, guys, and, and thanks for having me. It's a real pleasure, and I'm always happy to, to speak about um, the work that we do. Maybe short introduction about myself. So, first, I want to be CEO of OnCost. I'm an internist by training, and uh, in the last 25 years, I was basically founding companies. Uh, OnCost is my third company. My passion is the combination of uh, mathematics and medicine, to put it uh, very simply. We used to call it uh, big data, now we call it machine learning, but it's all really a um, very similar approach to, to finding clinical applications in, in very complex situations where you have a lot of data coming from a lot of sources and you need to make sense of it. Um, so uh, one company that uh, I was involved in was sold to Baxter in 2018. I have another company that is currently operating out of New York, um, which I co-founded uh, almost 10 years ago. And on cost, which is the latest and favorite baby 
The idea for OnCourse came from the time I spent with Merck. I was the head of medical affairs for Merck in our region. I was very lucky to be part of the, the, the global development team of Kitruda, which is, I think, the second, um, let's call it blockbuster immunotherapy that came to the market. Um, in the first two indications, uh, melanoma and, and lung. And while the promise was amazing, you know, we, 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 we saw an amazing promise in a drug. We thought it's going to be almost a universal drug to cancer because it's not targeting the, the, the cancer. It's targeting the immune system. The adverse event profile was very different from what we're used to um, from chemotherapy or targeted therapy. So there was a lot of hope. We did hope, I think, um, 10 years later, 10, 11 years now, we came to a realization that this uh, treatment is limited and we do need to find a way out to optimize the way we manage our patients using those new modalities. So this is, uh, this is how I decided to start, uh, to start on cost. No, that's, a, that's a wonderful introduction, uh, Dr. Strawn. And, and I think it, it really segues well into, you know, this conversation. And I think, you know, to your point, uh, when the first immune checkpoint inhibitor iplumumab was studied in melanoma, I mean, we, we went from an overall survival of you know, eight eight months ish to uh, three years uh, with just ipilimumab. Then the the you know combination of ipi and nevo together, you know, pushing sixty plus months and median overall survival. But you know, on the the opposite side of that, uh, you know, with all the hope that came with immunotherapy, um, we we certainly have more questions now than we did ten years ago, and 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 a lot of things that that still need to be explored. And and one of the biggest things is that. When we look at things like combination immunotherapy, particularly ipinevo and, and, and metastatic melanoma, you know, half of those patients will develop an immunotherapy-related adverse event. And, and, and I think um, maybe you could, you know, it, you have such an interesting perspective on being in, in the, the development of Pembro and, and, you know, which is, you know, to your point, a blockbuster drug and, and, and the backbone, really, of uh, our first-line treatment for non-driver mutated non-small cell lung cancer. You know, maybe you could walk us through a little bit about... Um, you know, for, for the broader audience, immunotherapies, how they work and, and how immunotherapy-related toxicities differ from, from target therapy or, or chemotherapy, which is, I think, something we're all a little bit more familiar with. Right, of course. So, so you know, it, it all starts with, with the mechanism of action, right? Um, immunotherapy is basically, the modern immunotherapy drugs are, are basically intervening in, in, in the way the immune system is reacting uh, with tumor. Um, potentially, uh, the immune system holds the ability to kill cancer, right? To put it very simply, those cells can identify tumor cells as foreign and attack them. Uh, but we all know that uh, cancer is a very sophisticated, um, I, I almost like to call it entity, you know, uh, in a way. The ability of the cancer to hide from the immune system. Uh, is 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 a very interesting um, very interesting phenomenon and 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 we see that cancer cells are able basically to mimic um, uh, normal cells so the immune system is not attacking them and the beauty of the the immunotherapy is the ability to unveil this uh, this uh, camouflage that the, the cancer cells are using uh, making the cancer cells vulnerable to to the immune system so here we have a treatment modality, which is not limited to cancer type. We can use it in, in many cancer type. And, and Matthew, if you remember the early days, 
we, we, we started uh, looking at what is called today basket rides, where you have very small cohorts of patients and a lot of indications. And the reason and the logic behind it is very simple. Why limit ourselves to one cancer type if we can test it multiple uh, at the time? Um, but what is interesting is that in parallel to the efficacy that we saw in some patients, and, and we need to get back to this concept of some patients later when we talk about adverse events as well, we also started to see adverse events that were, we were not unfamiliar with. Let's have a look or let's consider for a second what we know, what we're familiar what with from chemotherapy, for example. Chemotherapy, you know, if I take a military metaphor, chemotherapy is like artillery, right? Potentially it kills every cell that um, multiply in a high pace, no matter whether it's, whether it's a normal cell or a cancer cell. And with that, of course, come the, the adverse events that we are familiar with. The hair falls off, a disease of the gastroenteric system, wherever you, the, the bone marrow, of course, whenever you can find cells that have a high replication rate, you will see adverse events. Some of those may be devastating, some of those may be very uncomfortable for the patients, but this is what we saw. Um, and I think this is one of the biggest fears when you speak to patients and talk to them about cancer and talk to them about chemotherapy. This is what they're afraid of. I'm afraid of losing my hair. I'm afraid of all those adverse events that I heard about and it's very visible to the eye. Immunotherapy is different. Immunotherapy is not always visible to the eye because the adverse events of immunotherapy are basically exactly what the drug is supposed to do, right? activate prime the immune system against, cell, against cells. And in some cases, uh, the cells are, you know, losing their way in a way, uh, quote unquote, losing their way uh, and attacking normal cells. And that posed an interesting challenge because at first it was very hard to differentiate between um, um, immune-related adverse events and just uh, other diseases. I'll give you a very interesting example, a patient that I treated, a patient came to the emergency room um, with symptoms of myocardial infarction, chest pain, you know, radiation to other areas. He was cold, he was sweaty. When we asked him if he has any background illness, the answer was no, I'm, I'm healthy. He forgot to mention that he is a cancer patient, lung cancer in this case, treated with immunotherapy. Because cancer is a different entity for some of those patients, it's not part of the chronic disease. And he was diagnosed and treated as a patient with myocardial infarction and unfortunately passed away during catheterization. And post-mortem, we just learned that the patient was not suffering from myocardial infarction, he was suffering from an immune-related adverse events, which mimicked the myocardial infarction, it's called myocarditis, pericarditis, and the treatment, of course, is very, very different. Simple, by the way, relatively simple, uh, but definitely treatable if you can think about the diagnosis. So this is a very tricky or, 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 or a very challenging, very challenging for some of the clinicians to make sure that when you see something, when you see an illness, you should also consider for in a patient that is treated with immunotherapy, you should consider the immune-related adverse events. The immune cells are attacking normal cells and you can see disease of the thyroid gland, you can see diabetes, you can see, as we mentioned, 
um, myocarditis, pericarditis, uh, you can see neural diseases, uh, basically every uh, disease that we know of as that we call an autoimmune disease is something that we can see as a, an immune-related adverse event. Thanks so much for sharing that, Dr. Sharon. Um, I really appreciate sort of the example you mentioned about the patient with the MI who didn't mention his cancer history. Uh, what do you uh, sort of, just for the broader audience, can you talk a little bit more about the time course for which we see um, immune adverse effects and like what are some of the ways that oncologists manage them? So interestingly, with immunotherapy response is not always evident immediately. Sometimes it takes it takes some time until we see um, a, until we see response a response. Um, with immune-related adverse events, the picture is is similar. Uh, you know, most of the publications I read were most of uh, uh, patients I saw treated with immunotherapy. Usually, you see the I would say the major adverse events in the first three months of therapy. It doesn't mean that adverse events cannot appear later. Uh, they can and they will, but in most cases you see those in the first three months of, um, uh, of therapy. And I think this is where you need to be as a clinician uh, on your highest alert, making sure that what you see should be considered um, as a potential immune-related adverse event. And like with any adverse event, you know, we are treating cancer. We are willing as clinicians, and, and, and medicine is all about risk-benefit, right? We are willing as a clinicians um, um, to endure um, even severe adverse events in order to offer the patient potential cure in earlier stages of disease or elongation of, of uh, life in, in advanced diseases. So um, I think that... Um, when we think about immune-related adverse events, focusing on, let's say, the first three to four months of therapy, we should think about those that may um, cause treatment change, sometimes treatment stop. Um, we should be alert to those. Uh, the patient should be alert to those. When we are talking to our patients, we should tell them, listen, this is what you might experience in the next few months. Don't ignore it. You have a headache. Your vision is blurry. Um, your blood tests are not as usual. Don't ignore that. Come to me, tell me about it. Let's make sure that what we are seeing is not a, an adverse event that we can potentially treat. Um, so, so yeah, I think that this is this is um, um, at least uh, in my mind the, the, the most important part uh, for us at all cause, This is also the main focus. We are focusing on what we call the significant adverse events, grade three and above, uh, those that might cause treatment end or change, things that are meaningful to the clinician on the other side of the report. Yeah, no, the, the, we, we've hit on so many really important points here. And, and I think uh, a, a few things that I, I would just um, highlight from, from all the information that you've gone over is, you know, at the current time, we, we really don't have any great predictors for who's going to develop a toxicity. And I think if you've, if you've practiced oncology, if you've been involved in the care of cancer patients, you've lived through this, this horrible situation where you start someone on an immunotherapy and you talk to them and there's this huge misconception that immunotherapy is chemo sparing which i think really is a very big problem when you speak to patients because a lot of patients interpret that and there's a lot of you know news stories in the lay media about immunotherapy that essentially makes it seem as though they're without toxicities and that could not be further from the truth 
And at the current time, we, we don't have great predictive biomarkers. You know, there's been some really great studies out of Dana-Farber and MGH that, that looked at HLA subtyping, but so far those haven't really panned out to, to predict exactly who's going to develop, as you mentioned, these, these severe toxicities. And uh, I, I think for me, the thing that really scares me more and, and gives me more urgency with, with, you know, as we're going to talk about, you know, more ways to predict toxicities um, really is as these therapies start to trickle down to the neoadjuvant setting, because, uh, you know, this is something that I've, I've talked about with a lot of people before, but in the metastatic setting, you can shift that balance more towards, I'll accept more toxicity because we, we don't have a great option for your, your cancer. And unfortunately it's a terminal illness, but when you start thinking about giving, you know, potentially, you know, Pembro uh, in the neoadjuvant setting in melanoma, uh, as we're doing now, <clears throat> based on the recent studies done in that, that disease space, you're going to give someone a toxicity that's eventually going to lead to them not being able to get surgery or, or be fatal. And, and you could have taken away a curative intent therapy with a toxicity. So the, the urgency here is very pressing. I, I, I would love to talk briefly, just sort of round out the conversation, immunotherapy related adverse events, you know, what, uh, in your experience, um, has been the, the the best way to manage these toxicities. I know mostly we, we rely on steroids, and once we get past steroids, you know it's it's case series level literature to to manage these toxicities. And and then maybe we can we can start hearing a little bit about Oncohost and, and and how that's going to hopefully you know add to our our knowledge base of how to predict these types of toxicities. So yeah, I think you know. Um... Like many, many things in medicine, this is also, um, unfortunately, uh, something that is very interesting in terms of mechanism of action and, and, and why we are suffering, why the patient is suffering from a specific adverse events. But when it comes to actually treating the adverse events, we don't have great solutions, right? You mentioned the therapy, the therapy is steroids. In some cases, you need to stop therapy at all or, 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 or delay it. Um, these are the best options. And like you said, when we go to the extremes, you will see some experimental trials of people that uh, are trying to do something that I, would, I wouldn't call it extreme, but more daring in, 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 in cases where, the severe, where we are facing a very severe adverse events uh, up until a point where a patient may even, you know, um, there's a risk for the life of the patients. I think one of the interesting and, and given your specialty interesting uh, cases that we read about is the Stephen Johnson syndrome. Not, not common, right, but deadly. If not treated, the, if not identified quickly and, and treated the right way. Um, and I also agree with you about the concept of uh, the level of concern, because this is how, you know, this is at the end of the day, this is how we manage patients. Like I said earlier, it, it's risk benefit. The drug I'm giving you should do more uh, should give you more benefit than than harm. Uh, this is what we want to do. This is uh, how we how we um, manage our patients. In a way, we are playing a game of probabilities. The probability of getting a, a benefit after the drug should be much higher than the risk of uh, of an adverse event. I'm not going to go into treatments because, like you said, it's mostly anti-inflammatory drugs. We are looking about uh, uh, talking about steroids, um, and I'm not going to talk about the science fiction in in some of those cases, uh, the more severe cases. But I think, and I really want to 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 relate to your point about the adjuvant and neoadjuvant setting, because right, this is where the 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 we shift the focus from. Uh, in a way, uh, from efficacy 
to toxicity. There should be much more emphasis on toxicity because we have choices, right? In metastatic settings, sometimes you don't have a choice and we need to do whatever we can. We are willing to pay the price. And I think this is um, this is where it, it gets really, um, really interesting. And the way we decided to look at it, because Oncost is a company that is dealing with probabilities, probability of clinical benefit, and with the same concept, with the same algorithms, with the same approach, very different mechanism of action, probability of adverse events. So when we are developing the product, we try to start with a clinical question. And the clinical question of efficacy is relatively straightforward, right? We have three clinical outcomes, the response rate, the PFS, and the OS, generally speaking. Uh, we are trying to create an algorithm that will provide the clinician with a, a prediction for a meaningful clinical outcome, uh, but we are not here to discuss efficacy today. For toxicity, we have to think about how are we going to train the algorithm? What are you going to predict? If I'm going to give you as a clinician, to give you guys as clinicians, a prediction for minor headache, okay? There's not a lot I'm doing for you here, right? So what we needed to do is start by identifying the clinical need. And the clinical need, the way we understood it, talking to clinicians, is give me a predictor for the severe adverse events or the significant adverse events. How do you define those? There are very different definitions uh, uh, for severe adverse events in clinical trials and to, for severe adverse events in real life. And clinicians told us we want organ specific and we can name the organs, the brain, the heart, the thyroid, um, are, are, are basically the, 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 the pancreas are, are, are the, I would say the big or the most interesting organs that, that might be affected. So we have the organ specific, but then also we have the um, grade three and above adverse events. Those that cause the patients a lot of suffering, sometimes to a point where the patient will tell you as a clinician, listen, I prefer to stop therapy. And you tell him, hey, but we are treating your cancer, yes, but I cannot tolerate the drug. So severe adverse events, grade three and above, organ-specific adverse events, and then adverse events that may cause treatment and or change. This is how we started by defining what are we training our algorithm for. Got it. Thanks so much for sharing, Dr. Schroen. Um, so just in terms of uh, the solution that, that you helped create, can you just talk a little bit about the recent clinical trial, some of the results from that, um, and maybe if you can also touch on how providers can explain this to patients? Sure. So uh, let's start with the clinical, the, the clinical approach, the, the, and, and maybe two words about what we do at OnCost. What we're trying to do at OnCost is um, uh, stemming from the understanding that biomarkers uh, for immunotherapy are different from the standard biomarkers that we know of. And I think the best example is genomic biomarkers, right? And genomic biomarkers are relatively, relatively simple. It's a matter of on or off. You have a genetic mutation, the cancer cell has a genetic mutation that we can target or not. It's almost a binary question, yes or no. A, the immune system is a little bit more sophisticated. We are talking about different cell types. We are talking about the interaction between the cells and the cancer, between the cells and the, and the, the host body. A, and we were starting to think about the concept of multi-component biomarkers. 
In order to identify multi-component biomarkers, the most logical place to start our search was the blood. Because the blood, in a way, is a soup where you can see all of the biological processes that are happening in the body. That comes, of course, with a lot of noise because you have a lot of processes. Some of them are not necessarily related to the tumor. Some of them are not related to the interaction between the tumor and the therapy. So the first, I would say the first focus was to identify those proteins that we believe are relevant to the treatment. And out of those, once you identify those proteins, you need to start thinking about the signaling pathways, the biological processes that are taking place in our part of the response or lack of response of the patient to treatment, but also the adverse event or lack of adverse event. And this is a very interesting game, almost a game, you know, it's almost like, like a, a playing, a, a, playing a game where you are trying to, to be a detective and find those biological processes that are involved in, in the adverse events. And what we do, we're identifying proteomic patterns. We're looking at patients, uh, patient groups, and we are looking at the difference in protein expression between patients that are responding to treatment and those that are not responding to treatment, and between patients that are suffering from adverse events and patients that are not suffering from adverse events. And we've identified proteins with very significant expression difference in expression, expression level between those patient groups. We term those resistance-associated proteins when we are talking about efficacy, and toxicity-associated proteins, excuse me, we are not very original with the names, toxicity-associated proteins when it comes to identifying adverse events. The next step is we are trying to identify how many patients, how many of those proteins are overexpressed in each of the patients. And we saw that patients that have a lot of those proteins overexpressed, and I'm keeping it simple on purpose. A lot of those proteins overexpressed, the patient is likely to suffer from an immune-related adverse event. Few of those toxicity-associated proteins, the patient is less likely a, a, to suffer from immune-related adverse events. And we saw with an accuracy of about 92% that we can actually predict if the patient will suffer from a significant adverse events, as I mentioned earlier, grade three and above, and those that may cause treatment and or change, even before we start therapy, by identifying those differences in protein expression in the plasma. And the result, the, the result is two parts to it because this is an algorithm based product. So the machine, <laughs> machine or the algorithm um, is developed on a certain cohort of patients. And when we call it this one, a training set, and then we test the ability of the algorithm to repeat the result on a new cohort of patients. So the first thing you discover is the power of the algorithm, the ability to predict for adverse events. And then the next step is trying to make sense of it, understand which mechanism of action are relevant, which adverse events can we, can we expect them um, to, to happen. And I have to tell you that I don't see this, this as a standalone tool. I think that when I want to create a product for a clinician, I need to give a clinician the full picture, namely the efficacy or the probability of efficacy, but also the pro probability 
of, um, uh, of the adverse events, because this is exactly what Matthew said earlier. As a clinician, especially in the early stages, in the adjuvant and neoadjuvant setting, I want to be able to take decisions based on risk assessment, how much benefit versus how much risk for my uh, patient. And even if I do not consider the immune-related adverse events as huge risk, at least I can be ready for it and tell my patient, listen, according to this test that I see here, there's a very high likelihood that you will suffer from an immune-related adverse events. This is what you should expect. Don't hesitate to give me or my nurse or my office or my clinic or whatever, wherever you work, a call. If you feel that you're not okay, we can identify it earlier, we can treat you earlier, and we can fix it. And I think this is also the way we should explain it to patients. The fact that you see in the report high likelihood of adverse event doesn't necessarily mean that you will suffer from an adverse event. All it's saying to us as clinicians that there is a probability that you will suffer from an adverse event. And this is actually a great benefit for me as a clinician because I know I should be ready. I know I should prepare and I can decide on different regimens of treatment based on this uh, risk assessment. I almost describe it, you know, and I try to really simplify it as an additional lens. You know, we're providing the clinicians with additional, improving the resolution of the story. I'm seeing the patient, I'm, you know, the physical examination, the blood test, the imaging, here I have another lens, telling me something about the ability to benefit from treatment, but also about the risk of developing significant adverse events. Got it. So just so I can understand correctly, it seems like the algorithm is, is mainly based on protein-based biomarkers, and that's where you're getting the prediction from. Okay, got it. And, you know, definitely want to congratulate you and Oncohost on getting the 92% accuracy uh, rate. That obviously sounds very promising for uh, for patients in the long term. Just, just sort of thinking about sort of you know, wanting to do better and thinking about that 8% more that we have to go. Um, have you considered like other patient covariates, uh, BMI, age, functional status? Are there are there radiological findings? Other things we can incorporate into the blood-based biomarkers to maybe increase the accuracy? Yeah, that's that's a great question, and and also you know a, a very significant caveat that we as a producer of a product should be should be a, especially machine learning-based product should be concerned about. Do I see an actual signal from the protein or maybe I only see the differences in BMI of the patients or the sex of the patient or the age? So I can promise you that um, we ran multivariate analysis, we ran univariate analysis. We do not see to date any correlation with the clinical feature uh, that can explain uh, the probability of the, the effect or the ability to predict for an adverse event. I would say that generally, uh, the older the patient is, um, uh, the higher the risk is, and and um, also uh, we do see some correlation with uh, with BMI. Um, other than that, uh, I think that you will see papers talking about differences between men and women. We see those as well, not significant, not not a clear signal that we can identify, but. Relating to what you said, I think that a very interesting next step, and it's definitely going to be part of the R&D process for us, is trying to improve the result, the accuracy, uh, um, uh, and get even higher numbers by combining the algorithm with a potential clinical feature. This is still work in progress. I don't know. It's interesting. It's a good question. Remains to be seen whether we can uh, improve on that. 
Well, that's that's great, Dr. Sharon, and 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 I just want to reiterate again. Thank you so much for joining us today. I, I think um, I couldn't overstate enough that uh, developing methodology for predicting immunotherapy-related adverse events, particularly as you you know pointed out, the more severe adverse events um, is is not only going to be helpful, uh, but it's really going to be a critical part of how we manage these patients moving forward. Um, you know, particularly as we develop new immunotherapies, new immunotherapy combinations. Um, so that we can actually sit down with the patient, you know, look them in the eye and tell them, hey, you know, I think based on this, you have a higher probability of getting a toxicity, giving them a more informed decision on, on what they want to do and, and what amount of risk they want to uh, accept. So I think this is this is just fascinating um, material. And, 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 you know, this has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you. It was a, a pleasure speaking with you guys. And thank you for the challenging questions. Uh, I hope I did a good job answering those. Yeah, this is fantastic. This is an awesome conversation. Um, you know, it's so great to hear about this work and, you know, its potential for predicting IRAs. Thank you so much again, Dr. Sharon, for coming on the podcast today. And uh, thank you to our, you know, two co-hosts for leading a great conversation. Um, this is fantastic. Thank you all again.